Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episodes of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, and this is our show where we cover the news headlines the A6 and Z way. What's hype, what's real, what's interesting, why it matters from our vantage point in tech. And this week, we have not one, but two new episodes because we took a break during our huge annual innovation summit and holiday during November. So we're covering news from right after that to now. And in fact, our show focuses on evergreen trends in the news. So if you're new to the show, please do check out all the past episodes as well. But in this episode, our 15th, we cover two recent news items, one from several federal regulators about the use of alternative data and credit underwriting and what that means for both people and companies, and two, a quick post-check on all the big shopping holidays that took place this year, where they landed statistics and records-wise, and what that all means for retail and beyond. As a reminder, none of the following should be taken as investment advice. Please see a6nc.com slash disclosures for more important information. So, okay, so let me quickly summarize what the news is. The Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System recently issued a press release, a joint statement on the use of alternative data and credit writing. And basically, five regulatory agencies, and that includes the Federal Reserve Board, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, more commonly known as FDIC, the group that insures your banking funds, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, I feel like I'm rapping now, and the National <laughs> Credit Union Administration, the NCUA. So those are the five agencies, and they basically issued a statement on the use of alternative data and underwriting by banks, credit unions, and non-bank financial firms. And what they're basically talking about is that there are benefits to using alternative data to help consumers access credit and enable them to obtain additional products and more favorable pricing and terms. So that's the news. Now let me introduce our A6NZ experts. And we have two partners on the FinTech team. We have Seema Amble and Rex Salisbury. I guess my first quick question for you guys is, what's the actual significance of this news? Why should we care? Why does this news matter? So traditionally, U.S. lenders have relied on credit score to determine whether you're worthy of getting credit. So FICO, for example, is based on things like your length of your credit history, the mix of the types of credit you have, your payment history, and how well you've been making your payments, and then also like how much have you taken out. And by the way, you just like listed five factors. FICO traditionally is really using five factors. Right. And if you were relying on the traditional credit score, 45 million Americans don't have access to credit. One in five Americans doesn't have a credit history at all or has too little of a credit history to actually get access to a loan via a traditional scoring method. The interesting implication here is that if alternative data can actually be used in the underwriting directly by the fintech company or the lender rather than relying on what FICO is proposing, there's an opportunity to broaden access to credit. And then on the small business side, I think I saw a stat that over 50% of small businesses have a tough time getting the full amount of funding that they're looking for because they are shut out by the current credit system. So just to give concrete examples of that, this affects everyone from, say, immigrants who come to this country who don't have a pre-existing credit, young students who are making good money but don't have enough credit yet to buy certain things, people who may actually make really good money but don't really believe in living on credit and don't have like a long credit history, people who are fixing their credit, et cetera, and then all the way to like small business owners who are trying to get funding to actually drive our economy. To take things a little bit of a high level, regulators care about accessibility and fairness in the credit markets. And we want to make sure that the data sources are not having disparate impact. Because if you start introducing new data sources and using that for underwriting criteria, that can have unexpected consequences around 
you know, maybe someone from some demographic all of a sudden doesn't get credit or doesn't get it as favorable uh, pricing. Interesting. This has been in the works for the last couple of years. It's not out of the blue. I was at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB, while I was in law school. The CFPB put out a no-action letter. What does that mean? So it's kind of like the government is the police, and you're driving by, and they're saying, we're not going to give you a ticket right now. And then other fintech companies are also drivers on the highway and they're thinking, all right, I'm not going to get a ticket at this point. And so it's a signal to the market overall. For example, the CFPB was working with an organization called Upstart based here in the Bay Area that uses alternative data, employment and education data, amongst other factors, to underwrite its loans. And it went through this process with the CFPB to get a no action letter. And targeted towards one company as opposed to this announcement, exactly. which is more of a signal to the industry. Right. And I think it, it was like a 22-month process because the agency wants to make sure the education employment is not actually measuring a confounding discriminatory variables. Right. And by confounding, it really means like a spurious correlation where there's some other variable right. that's a hidden variable underneath that thing that Correct. people think they're using. Around you know race, gender, and a number of other things. Exactly. And the second thing is the no-action letter. They wanted to show that there was actually a benefit here, that you were able to offer credit to people who didn't have access otherwise. So one of the things around using alternative data to do underwriting is there's kind of a chicken and egg problem. It's like, if no one's doing it, how do we know if it's okay? But if a company starts to do it, they're a little bit biased. So a research report at the FinTech Regulation Lab looked at six non-banked financial services providers, and they're saying, if we were to use alternative data like cash flow modeling, how would that impact their credit decisions? And they went through and they looked at all these portfolios. They're like, is this as good as like the general FICO scores. The other is like, okay, what if you combine the two? You combine the traditional model and the new data, and it's like, okay, then you actually get some nice new affordances. You can do a second look, for example. So someone gets rejected under the old way of doing things. Well, what if we try this new alternative credit scoring way that's based on cash flow? Oh, this opens up the aperture a little bit for these other subpopulations. And then the subpopulation question is really important because, well, again, you want to make sure there's not a disparate impact. So what's the inclusiveness? And this is one of the things they said, based on you know what we were able to see, there wasn't much of a disparate impact. It's nicer when you hear that from like an independent group that's looked at six different companies than when you hear it from one company who clearly is like, we want to be able to do this. You can read the report yourself if you want. We don't know what alternative data is actually predictive because people have been afraid to test it because of regulation. So if people feel comfortable using it, then we can figure out what types of data is actually predictive and can expand credit access to people who can't get loans through the normal means. But can you guys tell me why like more about what these alternative sources are. One of my favorite examples from one of our company's branch did, I believe, a study in Africa that people who charge their phones and have them fully charged at night are more reliable, credit-worthy than those who don't, for instance. And there's various little examples of that. Some of these behaviors are indicative of larger and broader things. So the branch example is great using mobile data, like how often are you paying yourself a phone bill, that sort of thing. In the U.S., are you paying your phone bill, your water bill? Rent and the utility payments are things that are a little more commonly used. An example, you know, Plaid makes available bank statements via APIs. Once you have that history of transactions, you can impute, you know, cash flow. And from that cash flow, then you can make predictions about, you know, how much credit they can bear. And so that's something a lot of people have known about, but it's like, okay, will that be okay from a regulatory perspective? What I love about this is that for the first time, because of technology, you don't have to have like this five-factor only limited worldview into someone. So technology opens opportunities because you have instrumentation and sources of data that can now be found and categorized. And this goes into areas of machine learning, et cetera. It presents opportunities. Just because you're using alternative data does not, though, allow you to move away from explainability. If you're going to deny someone credit, 
you need to be able to have a reason that explains that. Uh, so this goes into explainable AI, like no black box algorithm is allowed kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. The other thing people are concerned about is privacy. The Center for Financial Services Innovation did a study, and I think they found that like 70 or 75% of Americans would actually be willing to share more data if it would lead to a fair credit decision. Especially if it means you get a better rate. No, totally. But I think they want to know up front what's getting shared and how it's getting used. And then they also want to know, okay, I got rejected, and here's why I got rejected. Okay. So what are some of the interesting things that companies are doing, actually, with these new alternative data sources? So there are companies that are starting to use educational employment data, cash flow data around rent payments and utility payments. And, you know, this isn't specific to just lending. But in insurance, we're seeing the use of alternative data as well. So for home insurance, for example, aerial imagery, flood data, land and soil measures. And then on auto insurance is another example. So you can have a sensor in your car that measures like how skilled the driver is at braking, the speed you're going on, and the insurance itself turns on and off based on whether the car is moving. Telematics. Telematics data might have a disparate impact on my rates. (laughs) That's hilarious. So bottom line it for me, what should we take away from this specific recent news statement? So the statement wasn't at all clear on using alternative data, and they definitely reiterate the importance of complying with consumer protection laws, but it signals an openness to using alternative data and that there could be value to it. And yeah, we hopefully will see some more financial innovation around this. And if you've been sitting on something for a while, now is the time to take that out and get to work. Fantastic. Thank you both for joining this segment. We're here to talk about in this second segment, the recent shopping days. And what I mean by that, this is ridiculous, we're talking about shopping, but it's actually quite significant when you think about economic drivers of activity because Black Friday in the United States is one of the largest shopping days in the world. Then you have Singles Day, which is like a day manufactured by Alibaba in China as a shopping day, which was on 11-11. And then we had Amazon Prime Day. So we have basically all these made-up shopping days. And just to do a quick summary of this year's statistics, Singles Day in China broke records. I'm going to just laugh because that's what everyone says every year about Singles Day in China. But the transaction volume is huge. It was $38 billion. And $23 billion by Jingdong. Which is? Another shopping website in China. So Alibaba created the event and someone else <laughs> jumped on the event and did meaningful sales? So university students actually created Singles Day back in the 1990s. And then Alibaba turned that into a shopping day. JD made it a big shopping thing. Okay, and then just another quick thing. Black Friday, the news was that we had 7.4 billion sales this year. And what was interesting is that online sales were up 17% from last year, and foot traffic to brick-and-mortar retailers was down 6%. And then we had Cyber Monday, which broke records with $9.4 billion and was up 19%. Online was up 46% from last year. And then for Prime Day, there was over $7 billion of sales. And here's the thing, it was up 71%, although it was 12 hours longer this year, and there were 10 more million Prime users this year. So that's just a quick high-level summary. Connie and Jeff, A6NZ General Partners, Take it away. How should we think about this? Is it even news? Why are we talking about it? I mean, part of it, this is a continuation of a trend we've been talking about, the migration from offline to online. That's particularly around the holiday shopping days. I think the manufactured shopping events is a fascinating one. Yeah. What's the backstory with China's Singles Day? You already shared it, but I thought that was really interesting. Oh, basically Singles Day is 1111, you love it. Oh, I get it. (laughs) Because it's for people who don't have significant others. So it's on that day that you buy something for yourself. To make yourself feel better or just you have something. To make yourself feel better. 
better that are you, you don't have a partner. Are you single because you don't buy things for other people? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just got, like, wait a minute. Well, we made a flawed call. The yeah. core flaw in this. Uh, <laughs> this podcast is here to analyze retail trends, not judge people's relationships. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but another interesting trend from this year is, again, like more and more of that shift is happening online. And so what does that mean for the physical offline retail centers? Are they taking in more returns? Are people thinking of it as, like, I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff from Macy's or Walmart or Target.com, but... I know I can still return it into the physical store. Yeah, everyone talks omni-channel, but Walmart and Target have distributed local warehouses in most communities to enable people to shop more efficiently. And like, Jeff just used the word warehouse, right? Like, he's calling the store a warehouse. I'm glad you picked that up, because when I heard that, I thought he meant literally additional warehouses. No, he's talking about the store as warehouse. So there's a story about Target doing more sales in total, but the stores were ghost towns. The leading online grocer in America right now is Walmart. And it's with their order ahead, pick up at store product. And so those stores is fundamentally a warehouse. Well, it's interesting you cite both those examples because the headlines actually talked about how for Black Friday, the two brick and mortar retailers are Target and Walmart. Jeff, with Omnichannel, that sounds like a, a disease. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not overall a big fan of the word, but it's talking about trying to figure out how to meld together uh, your offline and your online presence to advantage. And, you know, where uh, most retailers fall apart on their omni-channel strategy is their business wants to migrate from offline to online, but they fight the fact that they then just don't need as many stores as they used to have. And so if you grow your sales a little bit by keeping all your same stores open and making a huge online investment, your return on capital is going to go down. So the smart ones are trying to figure out, okay, if I move it over, how do I do this? What I think Walmart and Target have done very well is that, you know, they're tapping into online demand and they're fulfilling it in an advantaged way from their own stores. And a lot of these stores are now like remodeled where there's a bigger return center, there's a big pickup center, like the physical look of the store is now different. Are there any other physical changes that are happening around that? I mean, adding groceries to all the Walmarts and Targets, huge change. There are also digital-only pure plays who are helping grocers in America uh, address the online opportunity. So the other interesting stats from all the news articles is that of the categories that did well, electronics and toys, not surprisingly given the winter holidays that are coming up, were the hot ticket items at the big box retailers. What's your guys' take on that? Toys is actually interesting. I mean, I'm guessing it's not a coincidence that Frozen 2 was released on the biggest shopping week oh, of the year. God. That's actually interesting because you're the CFO of the Disney store. So you have a very frontline perspective on retail and the numbers involved. How does a Disney strategy play into this? Yeah, I mean, you can only assume that the timing of the Frozen 2 release was time for the key shopping day of the year. Yeah. It's not one of the top movie days of the year, but Disney doesn't just take the narrow box office thing. They, they're looking to generate uh, consumer product sales. They're looking to generate theme park visits. Yeah. They're looking to generate these things. What's the word for that? Is it omni-channel? Uh, no, that one, they invented synergy, which uh, now has gotten so hacked. Another sick-sounding word. You're, you're scared to use it, but right. it's, they, they really were. I'd go to these meetings. And at the time, it was Eisner and Wells. And every division head would have to come in and say, okay, you know, movie X is coming out. Here is our plan for this year. All the look and feel is synchronized. All the releases are synchronized. I mean, it, it was a machine, and they were they were and are really, really good at it. That is the one case where the word synergy should be used. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about where this fits in the evolution of online to offline and how these things pair together. What are some of the other technological aspects? Because I also have a question for you about the chatbot on Singles Day. Yeah. Yeah, Alibaba talked about how they used the chatbot to handle all customer service issues, and they handled over 97% of all the customer stuff just through a chatbot. 
You also have to think about all the technology around doing the logistics, around all the packages that were purchased on that day, all the shipping that has to happen. I've read pretty interesting analyses about how Singles Day has to be a complete fraud because no one can do the amount of logistics they claim no, they, they're doing they, in so short of time. They bring in workers from other cities just for that time frame, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that's done around the packaging to make sure even the logistics work. So on the chatbot thing, I have to say I question the 97% statistic because, well, that's an easy claim to make. At some point, anyone online is going to interact with the chatbot. There's no qualification for whether it was a good experience or if it actually took it to conclusion. But to put that trend in context, just to make sure we tease apart height from reality, where are we actually yeah. when it comes to chatbots in commerce? I think we're still in early days. When it comes to discovery or when it comes to like finding an item or shopping, I do think chatbots do work for customer service, though, because customer service, you're really triaging something. that like When you go teach someone in a call center how to do customer service... There's already a tree. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So you just follow and actually just a logical like, tree. program that yeah. logic tree. And that's why chatbots work well in commerce for customer service, but not for the shopping, not for the discovery. And then in China, they hire people to do the rest of the logistics and infrastructure, though. Do you have anything to say on the logistics and infrastructure? Well, the interesting thing that's happened in logistics is the emergence of Amazon as a primary player. For most of Amazon's history, they have used some variations of USPS, UPS, and FedEx right. as their basically sole logistic partner. I saw an Amazon truck for the first time. Yeah, and I'm seeing more and more things are showing up on Sunday nights. I actually ordered this thing called Bakugan. They're like little battle bots for my nephews. And I thought they'd arrive on Monday, and they arrived on Sunday night. Precisely because of that. No, and it's interesting. If you're Amazon, I don't know if this is their strategy, but if you cherry pick the easiest orders, the high-density deliveries, you go into there, and you use USPS for everything in Fairbanks, Alaska, it's very economically advantageous to Amazon. By the way, Amazon just bought a boatload of planes. I guess that's a bad analogy. It's not so bad if you think about the container ship and the evolution of the logistics infrastructure industry. So your point is that they're figuring out a way to take high density cities with network effects, places where they can deploy these high concentration value and then doing the edges of the network with like classic I mean, that's what I assume they're doing. I did a blog years ago about the second order impact of the switch from physical to virtual commerce and it was on why USPS is getting hammered. And in that, we speculated that don't be surprised if you see Amazon be either buy USPS or become a logistics competitor to it because of the quantity. Sounds like it's the latter more than the former. Okay, you guys, bottom line it for me. What's our takeaway? How should we think about this year's sales numbers around Black Friday, Singles Day, Prime Day, all the fake shopping days that are actually real shopping days that move billions and billions of dollars of goods? I think the big takeaway is that people are buying online and picking up in the store, and that the store is now a warehouse. And because people can return things, that's why I want to buy it on Target.com versus another site where it's harder to return it. That is just showcasing how consumers are really valuing convenience. And it creates enormous logistical <laughs> challenges for retailers. And the ones who are doing it well, you have to give them props. I think what you're seeing, instead of just all boats are sinking, is there's some people who are fighting gravity. But the overall trend is a tough trend to overcome. It's not easy to generate billions of dollars of online orders to your offline venue while you're also running your offline venue on the peak shopping day of the year. And, you know, they, they, they did a good job. That's fantastic. Thank you guys for joining this segment of 16 Minutes. Thank you.